What we need is men with grit like Lombardi to walk into the locker room, command our attention, and say, gentlemen, this is the gospel. The Godly Troublemaker Podcast. Introduction. Before the NFL was completely gay, it was filled with men of legend. One such legend is Vince Lombardi, who won the Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers and looks exactly the way you would think a professional football coach would look from the 50s and 60s. As legend has it, Lombardi walked into the Green Bay locker room to begin the 1961 season and held up a football and said, the now legendary line, gentlemen, this is a football. He uttered this line in order to stress the importance of fundamentals. He was one of the best coaches in the league and was coaching men who had all risen to the top of their game in their respective positions. But it didn't matter how great they were or how much they got paid or how beloved by fans they were. If they forgot the basics and couldn't get the fundamentals right, it didn't much matter, and they would find themselves on the receiving end of a good old-fashioned butt whooping. Not only that, if they forgot why they were there in the first place, namely the love for the game, which all revolved around the control of that football, it didn't much matter either. In the last couple decades within churchianity and broader evangelicalism, there has been a movement towards gospel-centeredness. Just on the surface, as a general concept, our response to this should be, duh. There was much good about this movement, and much like every movement, it served as a correction to what many perceived to be the previous generation's dryness and coldness regarding the gospel. And there was truly a deep desire by many to see sinners saved, and we praise God for that. Perhaps one of the biggest problems for the last 20-ish years with being gospel-centered wasn't that they thought too much of the gospel, but rather that they thought far too little, and in effect were pretty much guilty of the same sins of the previous generation. However, they did look much cooler doing it. There is nothing wrong with being gospel-centered. One can make an easy argument that the Bible is gospel-centered if we allow the Bible to define gospel-centered. If we understand the full effects of what Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high, if we understand Jesus as our new covenant head and the last Adam, if we understand the full implications of his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king, and all that that means, Being gospel-centered is fine if by that you mean that through Christ's active and passive obedience, the Father bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, and that at his name every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. One of the big issues with the gospel-centered movement was that they were so focused on their relationship with Jesus, which was reduced almost exclusively to a syrupy version of his priestly office at the expense of his prophetic office and what that meant regarding the law of God and his holy love, and at the expense of his kingly office and what that meant regarding his rule over every aspect and every sphere of life, including the civil sphere. 
Another massive problem with this movement across the board, this one in practice, is that we all just assumed that if someone was in the church, they knew what the gospel was. That is, everyone just presupposed that we were all talking about the same thing when we used the term gospel. However, this is not true at all, and these chickens have been coming home to roost over the last few years in massive numbers. A few years ago, Everyone just assumed that they were working with the same definition, until they got pressed on all sides, from state-sponsored COVID tyranny, forced vaccines, race riots, media propaganda on both sides of the aisle, climate commies, and LGBTQIA2 plus commies. We realized that all calls for unity within the church were falling on deaf ears because we were working from different starting points all along, and the overarching principles that make unity possible were different, thus making it impossible. What the church needs today is the same thing that it needs in every generation. We've just forgotten that because we've gotten soft and fat and stupid. What we need is men with grit like Lombardi to walk into the locker room, command our attention, and say, Gentlemen, this is the gospel. Philippians 1 Galatians In Philippians 4.2, Paul says, quote, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. End quote. Even in the ancient church, there were people who didn't get along. We're not told why. Perhaps Eodia forgot to say hi to Syntyche one Sunday morning. Perhaps Eodia seemed to have it all together. Perhaps Syntyche sent her kids to a private school, but Eodia homeschooled. Perhaps Eodia wore a bonnet to church. Sorry, a decorative do-rag. And Syntyche just went in the buff, just letting her hair swing low. We can't really be sure what the source of their disagreement was, but there certainly was one. Paul entreats both of these women to agree in the Lord. This is not a generic call for unity, but rather is based on everything that Paul says previously about the gospel, particularly about the gospel and humility and exaltation of Jesus. My point being, you can't call anyone to unity or to agree in the Lord if you don't have something to unite around. If there isn't an overarching principle that supersedes all your individual desires or preferences, then there is nothing to conform to or unite around. Jesus Christ died and rose again. That is history. He loved me and gave himself for me. That is doctrine. From the very beginning of Christianity, it was about the proclamation of a message of good news, that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Quote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5. If we don't get the message right, we don't get anything right. It is the centrality of the message and all that it entails that enables us to agree in the Lord. The message of the risen Jesus is the foundation. It is the football, if you will. Certainly, there is a lot more to football than the football itself, but you can't have the game without it. Nor can you replace a football with a baseball and then call it football. It doesn't work that way any more than it works to call Christianity a life and not a doctrine. Statements like these give the impression of a resounding piety, but are really just a clanging cymbal and a noisy gong. 
First, because saying that Christianity is not a doctrine, but a life is itself a doctrine. And second, our lives are lived based on what we believe about the world, specifically the fundamentals about the world. In this, doctrine is the very basis of life, which means if our doctrine doesn't coalesce, then our lives certainly won't. But if our doctrine coalesces, then it should cover a multitude of offenses. The perfect way to understand this dynamic is to look at how Paul dealt with rival preachers in Philippi and Galatia. In Philippians, Paul says this, quote, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. In short, these preachers had, shall we say, not pure motives, and they certainly didn't want the best for Paul. However, the message they were preaching was true. The doctrine was right. Paul doesn't care about any ill intent towards him. If the gospel is preached, who cares? God will sort it out in the end, and the last laugh will be on those men. However, the situation in Galatia was different, and Paul had no such broad-minded tolerance for the rival preachers in Galatia because they jacked with the message. Quote, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. Paul continues, quote, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. To add anything to the finished work of Christ as necessary for salvation, which is exactly what the Judaizers were doing, was to pervert the gospel message. J. Gresham Machen writes, quote, The Judaizers believed that Jesus was the Messiah. There is not a shadow of evidence that they objected to Paul's lofty view of the person of Christ. Without the slightest doubt, they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. They believed, moreover, that faith in Christ was necessary for salvation. But the trouble was, they believed that something else was also necessary. They believed that what Christ had done needed to be pierced out by the believer's own effort to keep the law. End quote. Paul says that if anyone perverts this message, let him be accursed, i.e., let him be damned to hell. Not only that, but let him live consistently with that error. Namely, if a little bit of circumcision makes you holy, why not go the whole way and cut the whole thing off and become super holy? Paul actually goes one step further and says, I wish they would do it. To which modern evangelicals respond with, I don't like his tone. And, well, that's not very winsome. Perhaps, hypothetically speaking, we should tell those to choke to death on their own pious tongue. Anything that anyone would add to the finished work of Christ as a means of finishing the work of Christ becomes a noose around their necks and the cause of all the disunity and strife within the church. Whether it be the current cultural cause or a more respectable theological hobby horse.
Yes, 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 we believe the gospel, but fighting racism, but climate change activism, but Ukraine, but racial inequality, but equity and inclusion, but trans rights, but fighting poverty, but vaccines in my stupid face diaper. Ironically, the vast majority of people that were involved in the gospel-centered movement, broadly defined, who were very concerned about their relationship with Jesus and wanted to live out the implications of the gospel, forgot what put them in relationship with Jesus and ended up living out the implications of a naturalistic paganism centered on man. Quote, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Galatians 1.10 Their problem isn't that they thought too much of the gospel, but rather too little. Most Christians today would look at Philippi and say, that's exactly what we need to be doing. This is the principle of Christian humility and charity and unity at its best, and this is what we need to strive for. But wasn't Paul doing the exact same thing in the Galatian church? The goal for Paul was always faithfulness to the message, either through commendation or condemnation, both of which result in actual unity. This is why an elder is not only to be able to teach sound doctrine, but also to refute those who contradict it for the sake of the gospel. Orthopraxy always follows orthodoxy, and never the other way around. If you forget this, you end up like Andy Stanley, substituting a false gospel for the true gospel, which is really no gospel, may put butts in seats, like forgetting the fundamentals of the game and throwing a Hail Mary every play will put butts in the stadium, but at the end of the day won't really accomplish anything, and certainly not victory. The fact of the matter is that everything is built on fundamentals, like the foundation of a great structure. Without that, you're erecting a wonderful monument on sinking sand and will end up like Ozymandias with an empire of dirt, regardless of how pious you may sound getting from A to B. If the objective truth of the gospel message is compromised in any way, not only can you kiss Christian living and unity goodbye, but more importantly, you can kiss salvation goodbye. Like filling the room with air freshener after something unseemly happened, like Taco Bell, so too is much of the modern church. You can put perfume on a turd all day long, but that won't change it into a flower. The heart of the gospel is that we can't change anything, not in ourselves and certainly not in the world without the love of Christ compelling us to do so, and that will never ever happen until we repent and believe the gospel. Not the gospel as we think it to be, not the gospel as we wish it to be, but the gospel as it actually is with all of its beauty and all of its sharp edges. God is holy and you are a sinner, and your only hope is through the resurrection of Jesus, through which he creates a new humanity as the last Adam. He lived the life that you could not live, and died the death that you deserved to die. Jesus died and rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. That is a historical fact. He loved me and gave himself for me, his doctrine." When the gospel of Jesus Christ is received, it works all the way down and all the way through 
and all the way out. This is of first importance. That is, nothing is more important, nothing is more primary, nothing is more needed, and nothing else can ultimately be built upon. All of this is not to say that we don't love other doctrines. It's simply to say that without the glorious objective reality of the gospel, there are no other doctrines of which to speak. This is not to say that we shouldn't long to live more like Jesus. It's simply to say that if you remove yourself from the fundamentals of the gospel by adding to it or subtracting from it, it's not the Christ life that will be produced in your life, no matter how respectable you may appear. Conclusion Gentlemen, this is the gospel. We never get beyond it. We never get above it. However, by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God, we build upon it, and this building will eventually cover the entirety of the earth.